This is Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Hello and welcome to Dialogue Gospel Study for March 13th, 2022 with Dr. Thomas Wayman. The lesson today draws from Genesis 37 through 50 in the Hebrew Bible. I'm Rebecca Deschweinitz, and along with fellow Dialogue Foundation board members Chris Kimball and Michael Austin, I'm happy to welcome you. We invite you to check out previous lessons, which are all available as podcasts or videos and linked at dialoguejournal.com. There you can also find the entire run of the journal's scholarship, essays, poetry, sermons, fiction, and art. Today's lesson will be added to that repository. We also extend an invitation to support the work and vision of dialogue. In the first issue of the journal, founder Eugene England wrote, My faith encourages my curiosity and awe. It thrusts me out into relationship with all creation and encourages me to enter into dialogue. Find out how you can help create a fund that secures the future of dialogue at givetodialogue.com. For today's gospel study lesson, if you're with us live on Zoom, you are welcome as usual to post respectful and relevant comments and questions in the chat. Uh, And I'll also follow along taking note of comments that might show up on Facebook Live um, where we're also rolling. Dr. Thomas A. Wayman is a professor of classical studies at Brigham Young University. He completed a PhD in New Testament studies at Claremont Graduate University and has published extensively on New Testament topics. The author, co-author, or editor of all sorts of academic stuff, including a translation of the New Testament, he served as a publications director of the BYU Religious Studies Center from 2013 to 2018. We are thrilled to have him helping us think about the Old Testament today. As is true with any Latter-day Saint scripture study class, the views expressed today are those of the individual teacher. They do not necessarily reflect those of the Dialogue Foundation, Brigham Young University, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or any other organization. Our opening prayer today will be offered by Dr. Rachel Gianni Abbott, born and raised in Fairbanks, Alaska. Yay! Uh, She has lived... (laughs) She has lived multiple years of her childhood and adult life in Finland, England, Sweden, and France. Rachel's various degrees are in art history, American studies, and folklore. Her PhD dissertation examines the Scandinavian immigrants in Utah from 1850 to 1920, telling the story of adaptation to the American West through the lens of their material culture, uh, specifically pottery, folk art, furniture making, and architecture. Rachel and her husband, Ben Abbott, have four young children who enjoy their time together exploring the natural world, hiking, biking, kayaking, skiing, and traveling domestically and internationally. They live three years in France as a family and are very grateful for that immersive experience living in another culture. At the end of the lesson, the closing prayer will be given by Jeremy Walker. Jeremy has degrees in English from BYU, CU CU Boulder, and Brown University. He's a former participant in the Maxwell Institute Summer Seminar led by Richard Bushman, as well as the Mormon Theology Seminar led by Adam Miller and Joseph Spencer. He worked as a production editor for the Joseph Smith Papers on the document series volumes 8 and 12. Currently, he teaches high school English in Spanish Fork, where he also lives with his partner and three young children. Jeremy's most celebrated achievement, however, is being Thomas Wayman's favorite brother-in-law. We'll begin with music. Uh, Mikola Lysenko's Prayer for Ukraine. 
with texts by Oleksandra Koyensky and performed by the Swedish Children's Choir, Adolf Fredericks Musingklasser Farsta. Our heavenly parents, thank you for this new day to live life and learn lessons and try again. We're so thankful for our lives of abundance and safety and privilege. Please be with our brothers and sisters in Ukraine who are suffering and scared and with all our brothers and sisters suffering in the world. We pray that the world leaders can be sensitive to your promptings and that the war can end quickly and completely. Please guide our teacher here today and also our thoughts in ways that can lead us to inspiration how to live our lives better. And please help us to have courage to change ourselves in ways that we know we need to. Thank you for loving us unconditionally. And we say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I think then it's me. Is that right? Um, Welcome, everyone. And uh, thanks for taking a moment to share some thoughts and think through this passage with me. I want to put something in the chat for everyone um, that you can access while while this discussion is going on. A couple of years ago, I initiated a a new translation of um, the book of Genesis. I I made it through approximately five books of the Hebrew Bible and uh, then decided better of it and decided not to pursue the project. But for the moment, um, I have my draft of Genesis available on my academia edu page and so i'm going to post a link you can find me there on academia.edu it's in a pdf and it contains uh, about 45 pages of footnotes that you can access that will allow you to to see the ways i was thinking about genesis and also find latter-day saint uh, friendly notes meaning that they do correspond to doctrine and covenants uh, book of mormon and other other Latter-day Saint texts. So you're welcome to have that, um, use that. It is in draft form. There will be errors in it. There will be typos. Um, I found a couple as I went through for today's discussion. And so I I am aware that it it might have a few infelicities. But at any rate, hopefully that's helpful to you um, and you're welcome to use it as you will. Um, As I I think through this, this discussion today and what it is I might want to bring Um, I had the um, interesting opportunity last Sunday of teaching the lesson before in in my gospel doctrine class as a guest um, teacher. Prior to that, I hadn't taught a class in over two years in church. So this is the second, and they happen to be week back to back. And it really really made me think about this, this passage of Genesis, what it is that we might be able to offer. I'd like to state at the outset that I'm not interested in the historical question. I'm not interested in recovering a historical Joseph of Egypt, nor am I, am I interested in trying to think through what it might mean in a historical setting. At the same time, I do value the original context as valuable, and so I'll talk a little bit more as we go. So 
I want to first of all define this pericope, meaning I want to define the unit that we're working in, and I want to have you think about it in ways that, that I find interesting, and then I'll try to be sensitive to questions as they arrive. Uh, so the, the, the manual has set up a, a larger narrative unit of Genesis 37 through 50. We typically wouldn't view the narrative structure as that large, but since we're thinking of the entire Joseph cycle, um, maybe it's valuable to think of this as kind of a unit that has a literary connected intent. And when I think through that, um, I, I'll try to show you that there, that the early people who wrote this, whoever that might be, um, is, is offering a very different reading of what a deliverer is. And so I'll, I'll dive into that more in a moment. Uh, coming back to the narrative unit, um, you should think through that the New Testament virtually leaves the Joseph story untouched. It's not interested in it for the most part. It will talk about descendants of Joseph. You have the one moment where Stephen recounts parts of the Joseph story as they appear in Genesis in the book of Acts. But for the most part, Christians aren't really interested in Joseph. He's not a major figure, nor does he, he kind of influence their, their belief about what a deliverer would be. On the other hand, the Book of Mormon is ten, intensely interested in Joseph, and it adopts and expands uh, Joseph's stories in, in many ways. And I'll just cite those, where tell you where those are if you're interested. Um, the most notable Joseph stories are obviously in 2 Nephi 3, verses 1 through 25, and that's clearly um, based on the Genesis narrative. So we're seeing, we're seeing it adapted there. We see the coat that is involved in the story in Alma 46, and we see, um, again, a very clear allusion to the Genesis story, not adding, if you will, uh, new details about about this story. And then finally, and perhaps a bit surprising, is that the that it appears also in Ether, in Ether 13. And so we'll again see Joseph's stories um, and expansion. The other thing that I found interesting in working through it just textually, that's most of what I do is look at texts and the way they interplay. And I was surprised to see that 2 Nephi 3 verse 5 contains a pre-allusion to what the Genesis 50 Joseph Smith translation would do to the Shiloh prophecy. And so it does appear that we have an early draft of the Genesis 50 JST. And so that would be 2 Nephi 3 5 and then Genesis 50. So what I wanted to say by that is that Joseph is not a particularly interesting literary figure for Christians, but he's an incredibly interesting figure for Jews. And the Jewish mindset will return to the pericope that we're looking at, this larger narrative unit, and start to ask some incredibly interesting questions about Joseph. And that's the, the way I, I would like to take it today. So I'm going to have to ask you to, to think a little bit openly about this, this question. And again, um, I'm trying to be careful. I'm not making a historical statement. I'm making a statement about the reception of this person. So what we have from last week's lesson is we have a promise that the, that the family of Abraham and his descendants would inherit the land of Canaan and that they would inhabit particularly Bethel, or lose, depending on which side of the coin we're, we're referring to that city. 
And what's important there is we have now a kind of powerless family set up to inherit this land that they are that they can't simply overcome the Canaanites. There's too many of them. They're too influential. And you effectively have a dozen or more people. And yes, they're very productive with having children. But the reality is, is that even though God is saying this is this is your land, um, they can't take it. And so the Joseph story starts at the very moment where we're going to say, inherit this land, how will we do it? And so that's where I think the story gets interesting. The other thing that might be interesting as a historical note is that the city of Bethel and the city of Luz are not the Jerusalem temple sites. These will be later pagan shrines that will have to be overcome and conquered and then re- and cleansed in the later um, prophetic period. And so the, in, the promise to inherit on another day would be very fascinating to consider God is telling you to inherit this pagan temple, the kind of high shrine uh, of the Philistines and others. Turning back to our story, the, the Jew, the, the rabbis, and we're talking as early as the 4th and 5th century, start to think about Joseph. And, and we all know the story well, but in, in very brief outline, he gets sold by his brothers, he goes to Egypt, and he becomes this very powerful, influential, um, influential figure. And it's the very first time that the Hebrew mindset has grappled with what a savior looks like. And I don't mean savior of the world, but it's the very first time that anyone thinks through who's a deliverer, because it's clearly not the power of the sword. It's clearly not Abraham. It's clearly not any of his children yet. And they, they have these promises. They carry them in embryo with them. And they know where the homeland should be. And they know what they want to do, but they can't do it. And so the rabbis start to say, well, what is Joseph? He is the deliverer. And they notice something really powerful about the figure, the literary figure that's being developed. And that is he shows signs of being gay. And they will immediately begin to ask this question. And so I want to I show you what the rabbis are doing with it and, and have you contemplate what they're doing is gendering the Savior. They are saying that the person that delivers us has a, a more effeminate view of the world. And so the very first thing the rabbis will say when we go to Genesis 3, 37-2, is they'll say that Joseph played with other boys. He's a 17-year-old young man, maybe 14-year-old young man, and he is playing with other boys. And we have just a kind of isolated verse that says that he's playing with the other other boys, which, which really catches the rabbi's attention. What in the world is he playing for? This culture doesn't appreciate playing. We don't have playtime. You know, we don't have nap time, those type of things. This is a boy that should be out in the field. And interestingly, the rabbis say the brothers sold him right after they see the plane. And they start to say things like that might have been inappropriate plane. That might have been plane that was of a different type than they accept. And so when we think of, you know, the selling into, into it, we think of the dreams. That, that would be the common Christian way we think of it. The dreams were arrogant. The dreams were inopportune. The dreams made the brothers mad. And the rabbis will say, no, there, there was something with Joseph's character. And so for the very first kind of moment into this, what is a deliverer? They start to see someone who stands out, and he's not quite like the other 11. 
brothers, the next thing they'll notice is his dress and his clothing. And as we, as you probably are aware, the coat of many colors is, is almost certainly a mistranslation of this idea. We think of, you know, and I don't want to take away, you know, Broadway and the amazing Technicolor dream coat. I mean, that's fantastic. And I don't want to ruin that for you. But the LXX translators, the Septuagint translators, don't know what to do with the Hebrew coat. They, they see the Hebrew words, and they translate it as the coat of many colors. And we've stuck with the, the Septuagint. But, but the Hebrew doesn't likely mean it was multicolored. It means it's fancy. And they see this coat, and again, they're starting to gender Joseph. No one else no one else do they talk about. He's a fancy dresser, and he plays with boys. The next thing um, the rabbis will come to is they'll start to notice sexual connotations in his dream of the of the of the field, and so that Joseph's Joseph's, if you will, um, product stands up, and the others worship him, and they're they're going to start to say, and they're going to grapple with this fact: What would it mean? if God was teaching us to have a savior who had this type of interest and it will create a vantage point religiously for people who, who want to ask is a deliverer mighty in power. Does a deliverer carry a sword? Does a deliverer come into Bethel and literally wipe out the Philistines or is a deliverer like Joseph? Is he someone who, who maybe um, was, if you will, effeminate, somebody who thought um, about his own clothing, who, who viewed himself in this way. And so what's fascinating, and when, when Rebecca asked me, you know, would I, which lesson would I like to talk about last week or this week, I immediately chose this one, and you, you might be a little surprised, because right after that moment, so he sold into Egypt, we have the story of Judah and Tamar. And that's a great story to skip over. That's a great story that, that we don't typically spend a lot of time on in our Sunday school and thinking through these lessons. And that's a, that's a good thing. I, I endorse that. But as you know, Judah and Tamar is a very kind of boundary-making sexual story. And this is a father-in-law who has a baby with his daughter-in-law. And one of the things that the rabbis will notice in the story is this is a statement of the Hebrew Bible of appropriate sexuality. So, so they will even think that the, the story is structured about this question, is Joseph perhaps attracted to boys? And the next thing it's going to say, here's the other boundary. That what Judah does with Tamar is completely inappropriate. And it's beginning to set the sexuality boundary and as you know, the story then pivots into another sexual story. This will be the Mrs. Potiphar story. And as we all know, you know, Mrs. Potiphar, she, she finds Joseph, you know, she's going to ask him, please come to my bed, etc. But I want to I show you a few things the way the rabbis thought of it and see how they're starting to think about this character and force themselves to have important conversations about human sexuality and what it means to be delivered. And so they're going to note, first of all, Joseph's a household slave. And as, as a historian or a part-time historian, that is interesting because he should be out in the fields. This is a full-grown male who can work the fields, and he's now doing the domestic work of a household slave. 
and they're going to start to say, well, that, that, that's, that's different. That, that isn't the type of thing we would see. And, and that does hold pretty true. Um, there, there, you would not find a full-grown bodied male working in the household, taking care of domestic chores, like, you know, cleaning the house or whatever it might be. And I, I don't mean that to come across as, as some type of role balancing here, but to say anciently, that's what the rabbis are reacting to. The other thing that this is fascinating, and I do want to read this verse. I'm using the KJV, but if you can use any translation you have, and the one I have, I I hope you'll appreciate. I'm going to read Genesis 39, verse 6, and and hopefully you're ready to, to kind of think about what's being said about Joseph. So he's now... He's now um, sold into um, he's sold into Egypt, and and this is what the author is going to say. Um, and he left all that he had in Joseph's hands. This is Mister Potiphar, and he knew not aught he had, so he didn't know all that he had. Meaning, he just doesn't care anymore about his household's uh, stuff, save the bread which he did eat. And Joseph was a goodly person and well favored. And, and you probably have read that, you know, before you've heard that in lessons. That says Joseph was a hottie, literally. It's it's saying that Joseph is attractive and handsome. Those are the two words that are used. And the KJV translators balk at it. They, they don't know what to do because no one, and, and that's a full underline at this point, no male in the Hebrew Bible has been described as a hottie yet. And it's like, what do we do with this? What do, what do we say? So now, now we have a man who dresses in a coat that his brothers find somewhat offensive. The father recognizes the coat and his, his if you will, his differentness. And now it says that he's a very, very good-looking person. And as someone, as someone puts into the, the text, the, the chat, is this is great. Thank you for adding the NET. He was well-built and good-looking. The well-built is really captures that sexual undertone. I, I, in my own, I believe I use the word attractive. There's a sense of sexuality to it. And so you know this is going to go sideways, right? Because the Hebrew Bible is now planting a full, well-built man in the home of a woman, and he shouldn't be there. He should be out in the field. He should be doing what he should do. And so we begin to um, we begin to think about what's going to happen. And the rabbis are fascinated with this moment. The rabbis will begin to speculate in ways that you might find a little bit too loose for the text, but they are now wondering, um, and they will ask, was Joseph in bed with her? Um, did he did she catch him in her bed or vice versa? And they'll they'll work through a lot of various scenarios about Joseph. Like what what does that mean? Um, when she grabbed his clothing, was he already partially unclothed, et cetera, et cetera? And you can find those stories um, in chapter 37, 7 through 15. There's that that's kind of where the Mrs. Potiphar event um, is mostly told. I want to fast forward a little bit more and start to see um, the way we can maybe grapple with the story for our own productivity, maybe for our own kind of um, development. As you know, the the Mrs. Potiphar event goes poorly for Joseph. Um, He has his clothing taken from him, which, um, again, the rabbis will note that he fled from the house naked, um, and they'll, they'll comment on that. And Mr. Potiphar becomes a 
enraged that his that this servant has tried to take advantage of his wife. He puts him in prison or jail. And Joseph becomes a dreamer. And Joseph becomes this person, unlike anybody else, who can interpret things unseen, things not known. And even though maybe to you and I, when we read these dreams, they seem a little bit obvious, um, the very simple dreams, they, they deal um, with things that Joseph can intuit. And because he is able to intuit, as we all know, he rises to this position of authority. He arises to a place where he has power in Egypt. And so Pharaoh calls him out of prison and gives him an Egyptian spouse and makes Joseph number two. And one of the things the pharaohs are so fascinated, I'm sorry, not the pharaohs, the rabbis are so fascinated with is that Joseph now emerges as the second most powerful male in the entire country next to Pharaoh. And he rides in Pharaoh's chariot, according to the Genesis account, alongside him as though he is his consort. And they'll begin to wonder um, um, about this, and they'll begin to think through this. And um, I want to I want to now look at a couple of things that that maybe can help draw out my idea. And I I had really planned to do about 35, 40 minutes, etc. And um, um, hopefully hopefully that will be helpful. So if you have Genesis 42 or some version of that, um, I want to I want to show a little bit about a family now that capturing that dynamic, we cannot save ourselves. We need this figure. We need Joseph. And that, that's what Genesis is partly grappling with. I'm in chapter 42. I'm going to look at verses 11, um, 11 through 13, just a short little pericope that seems to me to encapsulate the need for this other member of the family that's different. And um, here we go. So um, if you um, want to go to verse 11, We are all one man's sons. We are true men. Look at that, you know, that contrast, that subtleness. We are not like him. We are true men. Thy servants are no spies. And he said to them, nay, but to see the nakedness of the land you are come. And again, again, carrying that sexual metaphor through. And they said, thy servants are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and he is not. And Joseph said unto them, that is it that I spake unto you, saying, you are spies. Or in other words, that's why I said to you, you're spies. You're, you're these foreigners come to spy out my freedom and to see the nakedness of the land. Interestingly, Joseph has to know, if we're thinking of it in the way that the narrative is structured, that these 11 boys are not going to overthrow the land of Egypt. Regardless of what they discover, they're powerless in Canaan, and they're especially powerless in in the land of Egypt. And so he has all the power, and they need him, and he knows that. And now we start to see a richness in the development of the idea of what is a deliverer? What is someone who delivers this? In chapter 42, 25, and I'm not going to read all of these, but just a, a few to help you see now the Hebrew text is saying, here's what the deliverer looks like. We've, we've positioned him to be someone who, who is different. He's outside. Um, he's being gendered. Um, that much is clear. He might, be, he might be also viewed as a gay character, a queered character. 
in 42.25, uh, we're going to note that Joseph is generous. Um, he's going to give back their money. So he's going to, to, to have a, m- a moment to hurt these boys. Remember, they've taken his grain. They've been all the way back to the land of Canaan. He's put their money back in. When they come back, they're, they're really worried Joseph's going to hurt them. And the story says that Joseph's servant now says to them, no, we did receive your money. It must be your God. So he's, he's being incredibly generous, even though he has the moment to take advantage and hurt them. The other thing that we're going to see, and again, when you think about the number of people who cry in the Bible, so who weep tears, um, Joseph is one of very, very few. The other being Jesus. We'll, we'll see this idea of the weeping figure. So this is 43, um, picking up in verses um, 30. Uh, there. And I, I'd like to read this one um, so you kind of sense the emotional anguish that he's experiencing. And Joseph made haste for his bowels, um, did yearn for his brother, and he sought where to weep. And he entered into his bedroom or his chamber, and he wept there. And he washed his face, and he went out, and he refrained uh, from, he refrained himself or held back himself. So it's withholding and said, set out the bread. Um, Joseph, um, in verse 45, becomes the full savior. Now, he's the full deliverer. I want to go there if you, have a, if you have a text. I'm in chapter 45, 5 through 8. And this is, this is the, the kind of pivotal moment. I, he's going to make himself known. He's going to let them, let them be aware that he's okay. And you, kind of, you have to sense that this is where the narrative reaches almost its pinnacle moment because the brothers are terrified. They're, they're worried, what will he do? And this is where I think this, this gendering comes in. Joseph's kind. He's not a savior who, or a deliverer, we can use that word, that will exact revenge from the brothers. He's not one that will make them pay a price. He's going to be fully embracing, even though he has the option otherwise. This is uh, chapter 45, verse 4. I'm just going to read four verses there. And Joseph said unto his brethren, come near to me, I pray you. And they came near, and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom I sold into Egypt. Now, therefore, be not grieved, nor angry with yourselves. So here, I mean, look at that generosity. <laughs> Holy cow. Don't be angry with yourselves, even though, you know, I, I spent my life away from you. I haven't seen my father, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and that you sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. and. And I think if I, you know, if I don't underline passages in my Bible, but if I'm thinking about what stands out to me, he, he embraces a new narrative about himself. I'm positioned by God in this place to, if you will, um, to, to deliver you. I, I've sacrificed my own sense of who I am for you. For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years in the which there shall be neither Earring, uh, earring or corn, and harvest. And they're obviously talking about wheat there. And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. And it, it will be not I delivered you, but I'm the mechanism. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. And he hath made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Um, in kind of winding down and, and thinking how this will happen, um, 
I think it's in a sense a story of inversions and a kind of change of the social order. Going back to the promise of Luz, and this is is this is Jacob. He's traveling to find a spouse. He has a vision of the ladder going to heaven, and and one of the things I'd like to to say about that that will help here is he's shown a ladder, and the ladder goes to heaven. And remember, angels come up and down it. And the common narrative is to see that as a kind of temple moment, a, a man meets God and an encounter type of story. But I would like you to think of it for a moment as a conversion story. Jacob's summary of the event is not, I know God. He says, I didn't know God was here. He doesn't know the God of that place. But what he learns is that there's an access point, a kind of verticality to heaven that he, he knows exists. And he's going to see throughout his life that angels come up and down this ladder. And I think he now sees Joseph as one. My, my suggestion is that he now learns to see the son in Egypt as the deliverer, somebody who's descending and ascending. And Joseph almost embraces a very similar theology about self. It's okay what you did to me. I know it was bad, but I'm here for you. I'm here to give up myself. And one of the things that that rabbinic literature will, will, will wonder about, is this something only a gay character can do? To, to kind of give up the self, to say, I don't, you know, I don't have that whatever warrior gene or something we might say in my, in my character. So many stories would end here with Joseph enslaving his brothers, that he would take advantage of them in a, in a kind of physical sense. Let me do this X and Y. And instead, he, he delivers. He's, he's kind of selfless. And when I, when I think about, um, for me, my own kind of how, how do I think about the story, and I, I don't think I've ever said this well in a, con, in a setting that, that's ever conveyed fully what I feel. When Jesus develops his new model of, of what it means to be religious, he develops an idea of what's called diakonia, and in that word is will come into English as the word deacon. And you may not be aware, but maybe should at this moment, recognize that a deacon is primarily a feminine concept in the first century. And Jesus is going to say that the thing that we are all is servants of all. We are all deacons and deaconesses. The first person called a deacon in the New Testament is a woman. And Jesus is going to develop this very kind of selfless sense of service, and he uses a, a female model to do so. I'm arguing that the rabbis have wondered the same about the Joseph story. Do you have to, do you have to gender Joseph differently to allow him to be in a position to save you? What if, what if Joseph were Reuben or Simeon or Judah? And these, these, if you will, just terrible tyrants. That some of the brothers are are quite mean, and and I know we skip over the Dinah story, but the Dinah story tells you that some of the brothers would have taken life, they would have exacted blood. And so when I think of Joseph, I think there's something maybe to that. In forty seven twenty five, I want to read just two, two verses, a couple more verses, and then I'll I'll, I'll 
wrap it up here. Um, if you have 4725, um, there's a there's a really great narrative. It's kind of complex that I've skipped over, and that is Joseph's ability to actually purchase the land of Egypt. He's going to position his brothers in a way that they now own a, a significant piece of Egypt. And he himself is going to um, teach them how to do that. Um, and that's relevant. In 4725, um, this is the moment I think the story kind of comes together. It's the one verse I feel captures most of the dynamics I've been trying to, to pull out or tease out. Again, just using the KJV here. And they said, thou hast saved our lives. Let us find grace in the sight of the Lord and we will be Pharaoh's slaves. In other words, we're, we're, we recognize you are the savior for us. You are the person who delivered us. And, and imagine kind of you know, reeling back the story and going back to when they're sticking him in a cistern and they're like, well, I wonder what price we can get for this kid. You know, don't kill him. You know, we want at least a couple bucks out of this whole deal. And to look at that same person now and say, you are what saved us. Not ourselves, not, you know, not anything else. Then finally, there's, there's this visionary statement. If you're following along um, at all or using the, the translation that I made available on my academia.edu, or you're using something like NIV, or I noticed the NET um, that cropped up in the chat there, um, you'll see that this is a poetic verse. This, this will be the blessings of the children, and they'll, they'll capture who these boys are in, in perpetuity. And um, this, will, this will be kind of, after those blessings, this will be the summation of the Genesis story. I, I'll read just about six verses with you. So I'm in Genesis 50, verse 15. And when Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure hate us and will certainly require us all the evil which we did unto him. So <laughs> they're terrified, right? He's coming back. And they sent a messenger under Joseph saying, thy father did command before he died saying, so shall you say to Joseph, forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin, singular, although I probably would have put plural, for they did unto thee evil. And now we pray, forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of thy father. And Joseph wept when he spake unto them. So he becomes the only character that really weeps twice in the Bible. And he, it touches him again. He's, he's got his brothers. I think there's some recognition in that, that moment of, of emotional kind of breakthrough. Dad's gone. I can do what I want here. I have you. And his brethren also went and fell down before his face. And they said, Behold, we be thy servants, or we are thy servants. And Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for I am in the place, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass as it is this day, to save much people alive. Now therefore fear not, I will nourish you and your little ones. And man, you, you just don't see that kind of language coming from a very powerful man. I'll protect you and your children. And he spoke kindly to them. So to reiterate, I'm not interested in the historical question of Joseph of Egypt. I'm not, I'm not trying to establish the idea that he might be a character that is gay and functioning in that capacity. 
What I'm trying to say is that the Hebrew Bible is grappling with the idea of what can a Savior be? What is a person that delivers? And Israel has no hope of developing an army right now. It will take 400 years from that moment to deliver, to have a people big enough. And Joseph's provided a model of kindness, of kind of selflessness, a kind of person who acts out of the ordinary. I also wanted to draw attention to the rabbinic tradition that that says, is this person what we would today call gay? And it gives them an opportunity, and I don't want to read the story and say that's the only way to see it, but what I do want you to say is that the rabbis use the Bible to grapple with the question of gayness in their own tradition. And they're willing to go down the pathway of the idea of this great figure in Egypt, this person that delivers the family of Jacob. Is he gay? And they openly wonder this. And they'll even go so far as to say, well, the reason he didn't succumb to Mrs. Potiphar is he wasn't attracted to her. And he, he, had, he was able to be aloof from that desire. And I think about our own tradition, our own shared Latter-day Saint tradition, and we've kind of said something, at least I, I think we've said, that the Bible doesn't provide the context for discussing gayness. What does it mean for our own tradition? And we've kind of bounded this discussion out. And so I'm, I'm deeply impressed that the rabbis were able to do that. I, I enjoyed thinking through this for this discussion and, and hope maybe that it, it might help some of you ask this question. Is this an intentionally uh, literary um, theme in the story for Joseph of Egypt? So um, I noticed a few things going on in the chat. Mostly I had to kind of ignore those and, and keep my, my narrative flow. But I, I think if it's all right, we have, um, we have a, a moment for some questions, some comments, and, and whatnot. So I'm going to get my mouse going, and I'll watch the chat. I'm going to answer the question. I'll send you all a reference to an article that you can find most of the rabbinic text in and have to give me just one moment to find that so the article in question is robert harris's sexual orientation so i'm going to put that in the chat for everyone robert harris and you should be able to find a pdf um, online. Okay, so you'll see that. Um, he, he has a very interesting read on it, and so you'll, you'll see that out there. And, uh, and so the question just came up. So from what I can tell, Joseph only had the two children and the Egyptian wife, and, and yes, that, that is absolutely um, the way the tradition goes. Um, and so next question is, is the sense of coming to, dis, to you know, kind of uncover the nakedness of the land? Um, I think one way to read this story is the exposing, exposing of Joseph's. You, you mentioned maybe it's exposing his heart, but I think it could really be exposing Joseph for who he is, um, who, he, who he is 
you know, on a personal level. So, yeah, I, I mean, clearly the language there chosen, um, um, is, you know, is, is intentional. Um, I, I notice uh, somebody has helped me um, there and say that the questions are only showing up to the panelists. I, I think that's correct. Is that, is that right, Rebecca? Yeah, you can change that to go to everyone. You just have to kind of pick a different. Oh, I see. Yeah. yeah. So. Okay. And, but I'm not responding. Oh, I, I did put one thing in the chat. Thanks. Um, I've, you know. I've taken care of it. So. Oh, see. But don't Excellent. worry about it. <laughs> so I noticed there was also a question um, that kind of dealt a little bit with uh, Joseph's relationship with his father. Um, the comment was the coat is a gift, um, you know, from his father. Uh, I, I, I also um, had some other kind of questions. You, you made the comment about um, kind of early on about uh, his father's acceptance and love and relationship um, with him. And as you're going back to some of the previous um, you know, uh, Jacob's dream. I also was thinking about how, when he's coming back after his 21 years away, uh, and he's, and, and Jacob is really worried about kind of how his brother is going to respond to him. Um, and he's, you know, kind of terrified. Is he going to, you know, want to kill me? And there's, uh, you know, some, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to like offer him these servants and this wealth and I'm really going to kind of try to, um, you know, keep his wrath um, in check. But then Esau responds in, in kind of a way that is foreshadowing Joseph um, and Jacob doesn't know what to do with it. Right. At that yeah. point. So, so I'm really struck by kind of that story. And then Joseph as his son in this, you know, maybe shift, that happens anyway uh any thoughts about that one thing i i really i really think is fascinating that kind of continues that thread is jacob jacob is powerless with laban i know he's blessed i don't i don't want to take that away because he he continually resorts to this idea that that you know the the goats are are very productive and that's an indication of his blessing and he has uh children etc etc but there's a sense that is foreshadowing what's going to happen to him and his family. And that is Laban controls the narrative. And Laban kind of runs out after Jacob, if you will, escapes and, and meets him uh, near the, the place that he's been promised, uh, Jacob being promised. And, and Laban threatens war against him. And remember, that's where they go through the bags and they find the, the household gods of, the, of Laban and his family. And, and Jacob's. Jacob's owned, if you will, in that narrative. He doesn't know about Rachel's hiding. He he kind of, like you said, it's almost like I don't know what to do with Laban now. I, I thought you were going to hurt me if I left, and now you're out here saying, well, we could have been friends. And 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 so he's he's not a he doesn't dictate the narrative. Uh, Joseph begins to do that. Joseph is the one who will decide the kind of narrative direction um, in the story. Abraham is one that does. He he really kind of owns the narrative, but is but it doesn't happen so much with uh, Joseph's parents. And Melanie, um, I see you, you asked that question. Um, and look at Rebecca's um, link to the to the Robert Harris article. Um, you'll I think that's out there. Yeah, yeah, it's just one above yours. Um, 
Rebecca has a link to that article. You'll find the rabbinic uh, sources there. They're also in Hebrew. A lot of it comes from Louis Ginsburg, if you're interested, um, and uh, at least the collector, if you're, that's a pretty accessible um, text to get it in. Just reading your question, Marie. One um one thing that is has been productive um and I don't know um I don't know if you will um find uh find it as productive or not but we do see one interesting parallel in the Jesus story and then um here in the in the in the Joseph story and that is a a character that's called quote beloved and in in the in the Greek story um Greek doesn't really have a good way to say my pal, my friend. And so we we kind of have to do these circumlocutions in Greek. And so Jesus is going to have, interestingly, a beloved disciple. And, and you know, obviously, this is something to think through. What does this mean to have a disciple who's a very close male affiliate? And, and he's someone loved by Jesus. And we have a similar story here where where joseph is loved he's the most loved and he would carry in greek then the exact same phraseology as john does in the gospel of john interestingly the gospel of john's the only story that calls him that none of the other gospels will use that title for him so i I don't know all of what to make of that that's uh something my dissertation advisor was fascinated with and he, one of his things, and I, so I'm not saying this is my own thought, but, but of my dissertation advisor, he felt that it was kind of a special revelatory endorsement of John, that, that the community of John, his followers, the people that read his gospel, were being told that you have a, a special relationship to Jesus that's defined by love. And, and he, he wrote his dissertation on that. Great book. Um, it's called uh, Resurrection Reconsidered, um, but he doesn't really deal with the sexual component as much. I mean, he does a little bit, but mostly in notes. So, so at any rate, um, an interesting idea. And thanks. It looks like a couple of you have found that link. Okay. So I'm thinking about um, this question of uh, and I love kind of rethinking this idea and the Joseph story in terms of what does a deliverer look like? Um, and, and I think it also speaks to the question of what does deliverance look like? Um, that again, um, you know, we're grappling with later and with, uh, you know, Christ and his apostles kind of um, having different ideas about what that deliverance will look like. And that Joseph's that for Joseph and what the story tells us is that deliverance is kindness is this um, embrace making space for um, his brothers who have wronged him that um, forgiveness. Um, Anyway, so (laughs) I, I completely agree, Rebecca. Interestingly, the the Jesus story, who, which is also kind of saying, what does deliverance look like? Because we now have the Roman veneer, and we have a people oppressed, a, a kind of almost parallel story. And 
at the end, deliverance looks like bondage with kindness. The Romans don't leave. They only get worse. Um, the Egyptians don't leave. They, it only gets worse. But the story has delivered people. And that, that I find pretty, pretty powerful. Yeah. And that, um, you know, I'm thinking too about um, Joseph weeping <laughs> and the weeping, um, you know, coming uh, and kind of signifying what deliverance looks like as well. That yeah. kind of being with and kind of the, the pain and the connection and the, um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, we have to all ask the question after Joseph kind of shifting away from the, the gendering side of it to ask it, you know, is it, is it a deliverance if you're not delivered from anything physical? They have food. I, I suppose we could argue that the food and they're having their stomachs full in a famine is a type of physical deliverance, but they don't change place. They don't, they don't move. I, I'm, I'm intrigued by gospel of Mark. Um, Mark formally ends at chapter 16, verse 8, and he doesn't tell the story of the resurrection. And, you know, this has been a big thing that scholars in the New Testament will point out that, hey, Gospel of Mark ends in verse 8. And that is true for everyone. Historically, the manuscripts of the New Testament don't contain verses 9 through 20 until a much later period. And he ends with the phrase, this is, this is the, you know, the height of the Jesus story, that this is the saving moment. And it has the women at the tomb run away, quote, and they were afraid. And that's deliverance. And, and so there, there are people, these folks are grappling with a very hard question. Am I, am I delivered in any real way? Is it really just the kindness? I shouldn't say just, but is it the kindness of Joseph? Is it the, the empathy he shares? Is it the, the chance when Jesus could have destroyed, you know, he's hanging from the cross and he, and he makes this, this famous statement, you know, Eloi, 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 Lama Sabachthani. And, and he wonders out loud, why did you abandon me? I, th- I thought the angels were coming. I thought the legions were coming. And, and the cry of dereliction has caught the attention of a lot of scholars that Jesus finally recognizes this ends in my death, not my deliverance. And I, I know that might be different than sometimes you hear in Sunday school, but, but, the New Testament Gospels aren't arguing that Jesus is omniscient, really, that he knows, you know, hey, I end up here in, in the tomb. The, the Gospels see it as a moment of, oh, wow, I'm, I'm a dead man. And so, again, deliverance is really being thought through in, in rich, powerful ways. Yeah, there's some great comments that speak to this, too, from the chat. Um, I I like the idea that deliverance involves vulnerability and awareness of how we are both different and yet bonded together. I see deliverance from hatred and enmity and Christ did the same, love your enemies, love God, love your neighbor, uh, that that really, that really fits. Yeah, those are, those are great comments. Thanks, Melanie, Dave, and um, yeah, there was a question about Ezekiel 37 for everyone, and, and I'm just going to completely dodge that one, if that's okay. Um, the, Ezekiel 37 is is an interesting kind of, if you will, return narrative. Uh, you know, this is the Valley of the Bones, etc. And so, yeah, that's a, that's a great story, but maybe takes me just a little bit too far afield. So, Thomas, uh, I have a question here. Well, yeah. no, I'm not. I'm, I'm just sort of putting things together. Um, 
the way you talk about Joseph as a deliverer is powerful. And, and then the way you talk about it becomes connected to the way we want to think about Jesus. And, uh, and I, I love that connection. And I, I see a number of comments and questions that are, are making that same connection. But you started with the idea, one of the early comments was that the New Testament really doesn't pay attention to Joseph. Yes. Um, and I, so I wonder if you, how much, how much, how much are you creating the connection between, between Jesus as deliverer and Joseph as deliverer? How much are you reading into it, I guess? Oh, absolutely. Um, it's a very great question. And um, I would note there, there's a chance that it might be too obvious. Um, Jesus is Jesus Ben Joseph. So he, he's Joseph's son in, in a just a literal way. And the Gospels front that. Um, they, two of the Gospels start with that very clear statement. And so literarily, you know, if you will, here is, here is the son of Joseph named Yeshua, the deliverer. And so when I say that they, it's not productive, it's not productive in the 27 texts of the New Testament uh, that will comprise the New Testament. I don't know that that's the same thing as saying that Christians didn't think about it. Do they see him more as a Joshua? Um, and, and is that an irony? Uh, because Joshua is the powerful deliverer. He takes cities. He burns down places. He you know, lives by the sword. Or do they see him as Joseph, the kindly, kind, you know, if you will, person? Um, so, Paul, it, I don't know that. I, I can fully answer your question. I think there's a chance that that in reading the text and its meaning, I might be making a stronger connection than they would have. I fully acknowledge that. But when I think about what Paul does with the Jesus story, like how do I make sense of this? And and Paul early on embraces a, a Kiliastic millenarian view. The world will end. He speaks in the first person plural. Uh, singular, always, I will live and see the Lord, or we will live and see the Lord. And something happens to him at the beginning of Second uh, Corinthians chapters 1 through 4, and he says, I almost lost my life in Asia. And he, and he changes from that point theologically to say that from this point forward, my salvation will be conformity to the death of Jesus. And he has a very different sense of what deliverance is. Deliverance for him, it's very clear by the time he writes Philippians, means I die. I die just like Jesus. He starts to count up his persecutions there. He's like, oh, I've done this, this, and this. And he literally is counting, well, Jesus had these persecutions. Are mine sufficient yet? And so, so I would say for sure the New Testament is grappling with what does it mean to be delivered. Does it fully Im- include Joseph in the story? Um, not really sure there. So, so thanks. Uh, thanks for kind of keeping me honest. I mean, I, I appreciate that, the historical view. And I guess, let me just put back into that, that there's um, the letters and, and the rest of the New Testament is, is being created later. I've got a phone ringing. Um, oh, sorry. No worries. No, I, I, I'm just trying to ignore it. Um, as people are grappling with the fact that they were not saved immediately, that that Jesus was not a 
a, a, a an Avenger with a sword and was not and that the millennium didn't come immediately and and that text comes later and so that the the Paul narrative makes a lot of sense to me. Let me just say that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Paul Paul is Israel with the Egyptians. He he's got to do the hard work of saying this is going to take us four hundred years. And it's not going to happen as soon as we hoped. All right. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Tom, for um, kind of opening up some uh, new ways to think about this, at least for me. Um, this has been really inspiring. Uh, we'll continue some informal conversation, but go ahead and officially close. Um, in two weeks on Sunday, January, um, Sunday, March 27th at 1130 a.m. Mountain Time. We'll continue our study of the Hebrew Bible, especially looking at the story of Miriam with Maxine Hanks. And uh, Jeremy, uh, favorite brother-in-law, will will close us with prayer. Dear God in heaven, we're grateful on this Sunday to gather together as uh, people interested in the Bible uh, and the lessons it has to teach us. Uh, We're grateful uh, for Professor Wayman and for the insights he shared. And we would ask that these things will sit in our mind and uh, help us to find ways to be inspired, as well as to find ways to make connections with the people in the world around us uh, to uplift uh, and comfort. We are grateful for the love that is in the world, and we ask Uh, that we might be able to feel that love and to share that love with those around us. We pray uh, that we, all the participants in this panel, will be watched over uh, this day, and we will find goodness in this day. These things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to the Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Find more of our podcasts at dialoguejournal.com slash podcasts. Dialogue Podcast Network.